You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good evening, everyone, and those that are here, I'm glad you made it. Encouraging to me to see you here on a chilly night. Let's bow for a word of prayer, and then I'm going to play a chorus. And I've chosen this chorus because I want you to hear the lyrics. And I think it will pertain to everything we are doing in our study here from, from the time we began to the time we end. So let's go to prayer, and then Josh will play that for us. Father, we come before you this evening and thank you for this opportunity. Father, it's a magnificent study when we look at the doctrines of grace, when we recognize that uh, the entirety of our salvation from the very beginning until the end is strictly and solely due to you. It's due to you and the power of your Holy Spirit and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we love you and are grateful and thankful to you for it. Because if it was anything to do with us, we would have no salvation at all. So, Father, as we continue here this evening, would you bless our time? Would you open our eyes and open our ears to hear from your word? And may we once again see another angle of this perseverance of the saints. So, Father, bless this time. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. Josh. Name of the name of the chorus only by grace
I brought. Wow, that was good. Yeah, thank you. Now by your grace we come. Well, folks, tonight I've <clears throat> had it pressed in my heart to come back to this subject of the perseverance of the saints, but to present to you tonight the threefold work of that preservation, and really it's the threefold work of the triune God. So, uh, one more time, we're going to look at this, and then next week, we'll wrap it up. Now, all too often, I must say to you that I meet professing Christians who believe they can lose their salvation. One of my very best subcontractors was with me yesterday, and uh, he's one of those men. Now, I think that so far, we've clearly established that the Bible consistently affirms that salvation is forever. That everlasting salvation can never be lost. Now, that won't mean anything to any of us if we weren't born again. 
To the man or woman who is lost and outside of Christ, that means nothing to them. It's only the true believer in Jesus Christ that has that everlasting eternal life. And we can be sure of it. Now, a great way to see this eternality of the true believer's salvation is to recognize the power of the threefold work of preservation by the Holy Trinity. This collective work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is irrevocable. Now, once again, the great Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, ending his defense of the sovereignty of God in the salvation of the elect, three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and at the end, getting very close to the end, in chapter 11, verse 29, he made this profound statement. He said this, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. You can't revoke the salvation of the believer. It's impossible. So with that, just some opening thoughts. Let's look at this. Point number one tonight is the sovereign work of the Father. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to John chapter 5, would you? John chapter 5, verse 24. And we are looking at this point that the sovereign work of the Father. John chapter 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, pastor teacher John MacArthur said this about this very verse we just looked at. He said this, I quote, that may be the most monumental statement ever made in the Bible relative to the security of salvation, end of quote. I agree with John. That is a packed verse. Now, friends, in John chapter 5, verse 24, there's a little tiny word I want you to look at. It's the little tiny word, has. It says that we has everlasting life and has passed from death to life. Do you see that? Has everlasting life and has passed from death. That word has, critical word, is in the present tense. Meaning, the believer already has everlasting life and continues to have everlasting life. It was critical that the Lord chose that present tense. He did so to emphasize that, that we already have it and that we will continue to have it. Can't escape it. Now, there's something about me that you should know. I will never pass by a present tense because whenever that present tense is used in Scripture, it is always for emphasis, as is here this, morning, or this evening. The emphasis this evening is you already have it and you continue to have it to the end. Now, that's important. Very important. Because the already has everlasting and continues to have everlasting means it can't go away. Nothing can 
can, I was going to use the word swart. That's not the word. What word am I trying to use? I don't know. Nothing can, what is it? What is it? That's it. Nothing can thwart that. I was getting my tongue tied there. Nothing. Nothing can thwart what God's done. Now, do you notice on every single time we have met, who are we pointing to when it comes to the eternality of our salvation? Points to God. Tonight, we're going to look at the triune God and his role in that. But every single time that we go to Scripture, every time, God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit or all three. That's important. Because I said to you the last time we were here, if it was left to us, we would not have any salvation, let alone would we be able to keep our salvation. Now, the indisputable conclusion of the text that we are looking at is that the true believer has everlasting eternal life now and forevermore. Amen. It's indisputable. In addition to what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, we have his statement in John chapter 6. So you got your Bibles open to John 5. Go over to John 6. Very familiar passage to all of us. And in John chapter 6, we are going to look at the text again of verses 37 through 40. But I want to begin in verse 37. Our blessed Savior said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, look what he says, I will by no means cast out. Drop down to verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose not one but should raise them up on the last day. Friends, the all in this passage, in John 6, 37 through 40, the all is a direct identification to God's elect. You see, the simple fact of the matter is all whom God has sovereignly chosen will come to Christ. And these elect of God in and through Christ are eternally secure forever to everlasting life because Jesus promised that he would lose not one. He's making a promise here that he won't lose one. So the all who are chosen for salvation, the all who come to Christ will be, look what he says, raised up at the last day. Now look at verse 40. Now Jesus is going to sum up God's divine plan of salvation. Verse 40. And this is the will of God the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There it is again. He's summing it up. He's not leaving it open for debate. It isn't something that's worthy of discussion. It's done. Jesus is doing it. 
So John 6, 40, and this is the will of God the Father, His will. To use that word I was struggling with, you can't thwart God's will. It's impossible. Whoever believes in Christ, emphatic language, will be raised up to the fullness of eternal life because this is the will of God the Father. And it's also the promise of God's word. Not only is it God's will, it's God's word. His word is promising it. So let's read this passage in its entirety together and let's let the word of God saturate our hearts. Join with me. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, excuse me, everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, picture the believer resting securely in Christ's hands, which in turn are being clasped tightly by the Father's hands. Picture that. Now I want to take you and show you where the Lord says that so that picture can become a reality. Turn over to John chapter 10 now. Again, a very familiar passage, verses 27 through 29. Now, just picture this. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep, that's you and I, we are his sheep. We are the elect. We are the chosen. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And look what it says next. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now can you picture that? Us, his sheep, we hear his voice. We heard his voice at one time here in real life, when he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we heard his voice. What did we do? We followed him. Now here's the beauty. And he gives us eternal life, everlasting. And then he turns right around and says, he's going to hold us in his hands. It's a death grip. He's quenching it so tight that he's not about to let go of us. And if that ain't enough, his father's hands are gripping it. We got both of them holding on. And that it, it, they don't get tired and just let go. Friends, that is a secure position. When I read that, 
And I know that that's written to me, one of his sheep. Holy cow, am I secure in that? Why would I not want to be secure in that? Yet, some suggest that while God holds tightly on to us, we can fall or jump out of that divine grip. <laughs> you know what I say to that? That's just a bunch of hooey. There is absolutely no way that we could ever fall or jump out of that divine grip. Do you really think Jesus is going to claim that no one is able to snatch the believer out of the Father's hand if that was possible? Absolutely not. If that were possible, if it were possible that we could be snatched out of the Father's hand, if you believe that, you will not say this, but you will imply this. Our blessed Lord's a liar. The promise he just made right here and the truth that he just gave. If you believe that that's not true and if you believe you can lose your salvation, then you are calling him indirectly a liar. You're saying that the Savior isn't trustworthy. Now, if this were possible, if this were possible, think of the implications you're making against the sovereign God of your salvation and His ability to keep you. You're double dipping. So the first point that I really want you to see in where we've been so far tonight is I wanted you to see the sovereignty of the work of God. The sovereignty and the work of God in preserving you. The sovereignty of God in your salvation. But then we have the second point I want you to see. The high priestly work of Christ. So as our high priest, Jesus serves, friends, and I'm going to use a biblical term, anchor. He serves as an anchor of our souls. Who forever keeps you and me from drifting away from God permanently. He's an anchor. So the shipmen bring the ship into the harbor and they throw an anchor out. And that anchor is going to secure that ship from moving. That's what Christ is for us. He's an anchor. He's not a lead ball around your ankle. He is an anchor of your soul for salvation. And that anchor, Christ, is immovable. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever. Friends, as a believer, your relationship with Christ anchors you securely to God. It anchors us securely to God. 
Now you can be confident in this because Christ entered, it says, the veil once and for all and accomplished our salvation by the shedding of his blood. Now you see the most sacred place in the Jewish temple was the Holy of Holies, which was veiled from the rest of the temple. And inside the Holy of Holies rested the Ark of the Covenant, which signified the glory and presence of God. By the way, did anybody see the moon coming up over the mountain to the east this evening? Did you see it? As it came over that mountain, I said to Lori, God's glory, the Shekinah glory. Huh? Oh, it was incredible. God's Shekinah glory was in the Holy of Holies. Now, friends, you know this all too well. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest of Israel enter beyond the veil. And what did he do? He made atonement for the sins of his people. But under the new covenant, Christ made atonement by his sacrifice on the cross once for all and for all people who would embrace him as Lord and Savior. Once and for all. He doesn't have to keep going back and behind that veil. That priest did every year. But Jesus did it one time. He did it one time, once for all. And then where did he go? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. By the way, what's he doing there? Resting? He's interceding on all of our behalf. He's our intercessor. He is our high priest. He is, is our helper, our advocate, really his Holy Spirit. But he's interceding on our behalf after he sat down at the right hand of the Father, after he accomplished everything on our behalf. So not only do we have the sovereign work of God the Father, we got the sovereign work of Jesus Christ, the high priest keeping us for salvation. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And may I say that Jesus remains there forever? Guess what? As the guardian of our souls. Capital G. Guardian of our souls. He's guarding over our souls. Such absolute security is almost incomprehensible. I'm not quite sure that we are capable of wrapping our minds around the fact of what he's doing for us. It's so big. Well, not only are our souls anchored within the impassable and impregnable heavenly sanctuary... But our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands guard over all of us as well. He's standing guard. How can the Christian security be described as anything but eternal? Accurate description of what Scripture tells us. Assuredly, we can trust our souls with God and, and the Savior he provided. Here's something to think about. 
all of us have trusted Christ to save us from condemnation and God's wrath, right? We trusted him, right? Well, we're trusting him in something huge. How come we can't trust him now to finish what he is so hugely done for us? There's no reason why we can't. When you look at the tremendous body of scripture we have looked at to date, how can you not rest in peace with God for the eternality of your salvation? Especially when we see the sovereign God working and we see Jesus the high priest. I'll finish up with him and then we're going to go to the Holy Spirit. But we can't go there yet. I said to you that we can trust our souls with God and the Savior he provided. I want you to see what he prayed on our behalf. Since we're in the Gospel of John, turn over to John chapter 17. By the way, it's called Christ's High Priestly Prayer. Somebody has penned. That's what it's known as, Christ's High Priestly Prayer. And we're going to really look at 11 through 24, but I want to begin at verses 11 and 12. John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. While you're turning there, while Jesus was still on this earth anticipating his high priestly work, the night before the cross, he prayed this prayer for his disciples. Verse 11. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. He didn't lose one. Now understand that Jesus extended that prayer protection beyond his immediate disciples to all believers of all ages for all times who would come to believe in Jesus Christ. That includes us sitting here tonight. Now look what he says in verses 15 through 19. He is speaking about us specifically right now. Verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Keep them. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. By your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified means that he is setting us aside. Does God have a specific purpose for setting us aside? Yes. To save us. Now, speaking about all believers of all ages, Christ says in verse 20, look with me. 
I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is specifically you and I. Do you remember when he said elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he says, I have other sheep and other sheepfolds? Do you remember that? He's talking about us. We are the sheep of his pasture, but we are the sheep of another sheepfold. And there's been sheepfolds before us, and there's going to be sheepfolds after us. These same promises and principles and truths apply to them as well as to us. Loved ones, since our blessed Savior always prays in perfect harmony with the will of the Father, we can be assured that keeping our salvation secured is the will of God the Father and Christ's perfect submission. He was submitting to the will of the Father, keeping us. That's why his half-brother Jude has that doxology at the end of Jude. Because he understood who was keeping him. It was his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom he believed, in whom he trusted. The same Savior in whom we believe and trusted. You see, we are secured by the sovereign work of God and by the continual and faithful high priest work of Christ. But the Lord wasn't done in this high priestly prayer. To further the true believer's security, Jesus continued in verse 24. Would you look with me, please? In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Loved ones, our Lord and Savior right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's awaiting for that perfect day to come when he will bring us all home in glory. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. It's guaranteed. And nothing that we can do on this earth can thwart that work. Nothing. And our blessed Savior prayed that specifically on our behalf to his Father. And it's the Father's will that he bring us home safely. John 14. I go to prepare a place for you and where I go, I will come and get you and take you. Tonight we're looking at the sovereign work of God in our preservation. We're looking at the sovereign work of Christ as our high priestly Savior. The high priest that makes atonement on our behalf and our high priest who continues to intercede on our behalf. 
But then we get to the seal and the guarantee of the Spirit. Third point. Now you would think that God's simple and straightforward proclamation found here in John's Gospel would be enough to convince us of our security and salvation. But God wanted to tell us more. He wanted us to really get this. So God wanted to tell us that we are sealed and guaranteed an inheritance. Sealed and guaranteed an inheritance. And he did so through the great apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. So would you turn with me please to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. You know, I just love this passage. I got to start. I got to start in verse 3. We'll go verse 3 through 9 and then drop down 11 through 14. I, I just can't resist this. It's so rich. So before we start reading it, I want you to picture the Apostle Paul in verse 3. He's just recognizing just how blessed we are by the Father. We've been Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he launches in, launches in to a payet of praise to God. And he's, he's listing all the things that God did on our behalf to save us. It's, this is one of the most magnificent texts in all the Bible. So once again, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Uh, listen, how, listen why. According to the good pleasure of his will. He found good pleasure in redeeming us before the foundation of the world. By the way, I think Jason, Jason, that cute little, tiny little girl that you hold on Sunday, are you, are you and Angie adopting her? That's what I thought. They're adopting that cute little, beautiful little baby. They are taking that baby, and that baby is going to be part of the Kate's family. And she's going to have every blessing that every child in the Kate's family will receive. That's what God did to us. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, He adopted us into His family so that He could bless us. Jason and Angie aren't going to adopt that little girl not to bless her. And they're going to keep her. That's what God's done for us in a much bigger and grander way. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, 
having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Verse 11, in him also we have attained an inheritance. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed Well, if that's not enough for you, verse 14, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I don't know anything more glorious than that right there. That just, that just secures my heart to no end. Beloved, God is guaranteeing his promises in verses 4 through 9 by his seal and his guarantee. He's doing it through the Holy Spirit. And to extinguish any thought of insecurity, Paul makes a statement of God's ability to carry out what he provided. I've got to show it to you. Go to look at verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ. Can there truly be any question about the true believer's eternality? Could you ever read all of that and somehow, some way conclude, I can lose my salvation? It would be the greatest distortion to the blessed word of God. There can be no question about the true believer's eternality. At least no question according to scripture. As one means of guaranteeing his promises, God seals us with the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's sealing us. Hun, I think it's when you can. I'm not really domestic. Yeah, you're hun. Who'd you think? I wasn't talking to Nate. Hun, babe, when you can, whatever you're canning, and you put that, Seal on and that lid on. That baby is sealed, right? I'm not very domestic. That, that's just a tiny glimpse. Just a tiny glimpse of how the Holy Spirit is sealing us for eternal life. It's sealed. It's done. You have to take those seals and hit it with something to open them, huh? 
Well, you always hand it to me to go. And it pops. It's pretty hard to open. I'm getting old and weak now. You guys get what is happening here? The Holy Spirit of God is is giving you an inheritance that has been guaranteed and sealed. Can't remove it. The same Holy Spirit that remains in us to empower us to persevere to the end. The same Holy Spirit that is our helper and advocate. The same Holy Spirit that assures us of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. The same Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8, 16 through 17. In fact, let's turn there. Please, jump back to Romans. Romans 8. I got to pick it up in verse 14. I always sneak a couple in on you, don't I? It's too rich. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are, catch this, sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Did you catch that? You were given this spirit of bondage to have fear. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That means Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Huh. Everywhere we go, it's replete. We're sons of God because of the Spirit of God. We weren't given the spirit of fear. We don't need to fear that we're going to lose our salvation. We can have peace and have our souls anchored to Christ, and know that we have salvation. If that's not enough, God says right here through the hand of Paul, you're heirs. Heirs of God. And children of God. His little girl, what's her name? Zoe. His little girl, Zoe is now going to be an heir of the Cates family. And she's going to receive every blessing being adopted into that family. And that's exactly what God's done for us. He's adopted us into his family. He's made us heirs with Christ, joint heirs, by the way. And we got nothing to fear. The Holy Spirit is our security, our special guarantee from God. I like the New American Standard. 
it rendered Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 this way. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Does anybody have the NASB? A pledge, more powerful, much more accurate. That word pledge, it comes from a Greek word, erebon, which literally means this, securing a purchase. Securing a purchase. Now this word refers to a down payment or what we would call earnest money to secure that purchase. You see, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit as the divine pledge of our inheritance, securing our purchase. We've been purchased. We've been bought with a price for an inheritance. (coughs) Excuse me, and we have a pledge. I said this, God's first installment of his guarantee that the fullness of his promise will one day be completely fulfilled. Furthermore, we are assured with an absolute certainty only God can provide. And here's why. Because the Holy Spirit is the church's irrevocable pledge securing our purchase. In other words, the Holy Spirit's pledge is the church's divine engagement ring, signifying that Christ as, excuse me, that as Christ's bride, she will never be forgotten nor forsaken. Does not Ephesians chapter 5 say that the church is a picture of Christ? Is, is marriage a picture also? Yes. The Holy Spirit's pledge is the church's divine engagement ring, signifying that as Christ's bride, she will never be forgotten nor forsaken. Did not the Lord, no, the Father say, I will not forsake you nor abandon you? Is that in Hebrews? I will not forsake nor abandon you. That's because we are the bride of Christ. And the Holy Spirit's our pledge. So we have the Father's sovereign decree. We have the Son's intercessory ministry. We have the Spirit's sealed and guaranteed promise. All working together magnificently in providing a secure salvation. They are all working together magnificently in providing the eternality of that salvation. So, some closing thoughts. The threefold work of preservation by the triune God, it brings peace. I'm going to tell you that I have peace that surpasses all understanding. Because when I read God's word and I'm looking at this subject matter, it does nothing but bring peace to my soul. Peace to my heart. 
Paul said the peace that surpasses all understanding in Philippians 4. So what's peace? We talk about it all the time. What is peace? Anybody? What's peace? Anybody? Peace is the tranquility of our heart. Peace is no more war. We're not at war with God. And we have peace. We have tranquility of heart. In other words, the state of war is no more as believers in Jesus Christ. And so the byproduct of that is peace. We have peace. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he said this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now friends, this is a very important statement. This is very important, peace. The peace spoken of here, it's not subjective, but it's objective. In, In other words, let me put it this way. The peace that Paul's talking about here, the peace that all of us should have because we're in Christ Jesus, it's not a feeling. It's a fact. The peace is a fact. That's why it's objective. Now, apart from salvation through Jesus Christ, every human being is spiritually at war with God, right? And they're an enemy of God, right? Now, they wouldn't say that, but that's what Scripture says. They are at war with God. They are enemies of God. Now, regardless of what his or her feelings about God may be, in the same way, the person who is justified by faith is at peace with God. That's what Scripture says. We're justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. Thus, through trusting in Jesus Christ, a sinner's war with God has ended, listen carefully, has ended for all eternity. We're not going to go back and be at war with God. That's impossible. As believers in Jesus Christ, the war that we were with God in is over. It ended for eternity. And those who trust in Christ are no longer God's enemies under his wrath, but are at peace with God. I want to read you something. Another book I highly recommend is Saved Without a Doubt, How to Be Sure of Your Salvation by John MacArthur. He wrote this many years ago. It's outstanding. I want to read you something he wrote. I said to you that through trusting in Jesus Christ, a sinner's war with God has ended for all eternity. Let me read you what John MacArthur says about that very thing. He says, most non-Christians don't think of themselves as enemies of God. 
because they have no conscience feeling of hatred for him and do not actively oppose his work or contradict his word. They consider themselves, at worst, to be neutral about God. But no such neutrality is possible. The mind of every unsaved person Excuse me, the mind of every, yeah, of every unsaved person is at peace only with the things of the flesh and is therefore, by definition, hostile towards God, Romans 8, 7. It can't be otherwise. Friends, it's true. That's what Scripture teaches. It's only us. It's only the true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that have peace with God and will have peace with God forever. And when we fall short of the glory of God, that peace with God is not damaged because we have a Savior sitting at the right hand of God the Father interceding on our behalf. But also remember, he said this, it's finished. There is no war or wrath of God for the true believer in Jesus Christ. That wrath was poured out on Christ on our behalf. We are no longer enemies of God. We've been adopted into his family and are joint heirs with Christ for eternity. Friends, the most immediate consequence of justification is reconciliation. And because because we have been reconciled with God, that brings the peace with God, the peace of God to the believer. And that peace is forever. I said to you, when we read these magnificent passages, I get this, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, that peace, I guess it's that peace that surpasses all understanding where it wells up inside of me and brings me great joy because I know that I'm anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace that surpasses all understanding floods my heart. And may I say that the peace with God is permanent and irrevocable because of Jesus Christ. And I make this claim because our blessed Lord says of those who belong to him, I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 8, 12. Thus, the perseverance of the saints is a collective work of the triune God. And their work has eternal permanence, everlasting, eternal life that will never blemish nor fade away because of the threefold work of preservation by the triune God, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because of the sovereign work of the Father, because of the high priestly work of Christ, and because of the seal and guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Jude.
I think we may close quite often with this doxology. Turn over to Jude, verses 24 and 25. I don't know any other way to praise God except with what Jude wrote here. Now to Him, to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior. Who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That was Jesus' half-brother that wrote that magnificent doxology. Because Jude understood the doctrines of grace. All the apostles understood the doctrines of grace. Every one of them touched somewhere in their epistles. Somewhere they brush up against the doctrines of grace. And I said to you, when we began the perseverance of the saints, the doctrines of grace stand or fall on this doctrine. That's why this doctrine is so important. That's why I told you that friend of mine, that dear brother in the Lord, he believes that any people who believe they can lose this, he thinks that's heretical. Lori asked me, how do I really feel about that? She asked me the other day, how do you really feel yourself about that? I'm troubled over it. Not sure I could go as far as saying heretical. Strong words. But trust me, I'm troubled over it. And here's why. The doctrine if the, the doctrine of, I don't know, what, what do they call it where you can lose your salvation? What, is there a doctrine they call that? I don't even know. If they hold to that, the implications. That makes God a liar, Christ a liar, and God's word untrustworthy. What Christ did on the cross wasn't adequate, wasn't sufficient. I can give you a list of things that you're attacking the character of God. I know you said that last time. I just, oh, it's a powerful word. I've used that word, but I won't try to convince you either way, but I'm very troubled over people who believe that you can lose something so precious as this. So with that, Josh, could you play that chorus one more time? Thank you. While he's turning that on one more time, I'm going to finish Perseverance of the Saints next week. We're going to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to look ahead. First Peter chapter 1, I believe my actual text is uh, verses 3 through 5a. If you want to look ahead, I, I would love it. Um, powerful text. If anybody could have lost their salvation, I would have thought Peter would have, huh? He denied the Lord three times. He did not. And he wrote a little treatise about it. Look ahead, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5a. 
I'll finish up the perseverance of the saints next week with that passage. Josh.
have great theology. Isn't that good? Thanks, Josh. Real quickly, now to him, to Jesus Christ, who is able to keep us from stumbling. That's the key, friends. God's grace through Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I'm overwhelmed at this moment with um, a love and affection for you and for your Son and for your Holy Spirit. I have that overwhelming feeling of that peace that surpasses all understanding because when I listen to the chorus and when I read Scripture, I see what you've done on our behalf from the beginning to the end. I know no other way to stand before you but in awe, in humble awe of the great God in which thou art, in reverence of you and your holiness and your righteousness. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for pouring that grace out upon us all who are here tonight. Thank you that you looked past our sin and you looked past our sin at this moment, and you see us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Forever we'll be thankful, and forever we'll spend eternity with you, rejoicing and worshiping and exalting and praising the great and awesome God that you are. Until that time, help us to do that here on this earth. Help us have the joy that is unspeakable because of, again, what you and your Son and the Holy Spirit have done on our behalf. Bless us now as we go. Maybe as we do head out tonight, you'll touch our hearts even more. We love you and thank you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.